This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented. Checkpoint, you deserve the best security. Given everything that's happened these last few days, you may feel a hundred years old, but we actually are a hundred. We are celebrating our hundredth edition of Unholy. Huge amounts to talk about. We are going to speak with an extremely special guest in the form of Yuval Noah Harari. It's Unholy. I'm Jonathan Friedland of The Guardian in London. And I'm Yunit Levy of Channel 12 in Tel Aviv. Unholy, two Jews on the news from Keshet Podcast, episode 100. We should call this episode, if I told you once, I told you a hundred times. Um, we have a lot to talk about, you know, like, so we'll have to, you know, leave the whole festivities for later, I think, because there's a lot of news and there's Yuval Noah Harari. But after that, we will uh, discuss at length our... We will, we'll celebrate, we'll get our party hats on, streamers and uh, whistles, the whole thing, although, you know, not everyone will necessarily feel in that kind of mood, given events. We did do, of course, an update, special update edition earlier on in the week, because we got to the point where you couldn't wait seven days. News and events were moving so fast. Where we left things, it's like one of those bingeable series, uh, you know, previously on Unholy, we had the the government backing down, Netanyahu essentially backing down and saying, okay, pause. Since then, well, so much, but go on, you kick us off your knee. Well, yeah, as you said, I, we urge our listeners to listen to our midweek update because we covered the uh, firing of uh, Defense Minister Yoav Gallant and streets erupting in protests after that. And then, as you said, Netanyahu pausing the legislation. Since then, we should begin doing our, these things as a daily uh, update. But since then, uh, the main story that happened uh, really Tuesday night is the fallout between President Biden and the Prime Minister of Israel. Who could have seen that coming? Uh, but really, I mean, even in the biggest of crises between the two countries, and we remember a few of those, I don't remember the President of the United States ever speaking in such a harsh way about the uh, Israeli Prime Minister on record in front of the camera, it's very clear that the United States and the Biden administration is uh, furious, really, at Netanyahu for the legislative uh, initiative for the judicial overhaul and the president saying, I am very concerned. I'm concerned that they get this straight. They cannot continue down this road. Hopefully, the prime minister will act in a way that uh, he can try and uh, work out some genuine compromise, he says. And when asked specifically if he will invite Netanyahu to the White House, he says not in the near term. Now, this is really interesting vis-a-vis timing, because this is happening after Netanyahu is uh, halting or putting a pause on the legislation. It kind of goes to show, first of all, that they don't really believe him, that he's serious in this intention, but also a lot of other things that are going on. They're furious at him firing you off Galant, one of the top ministers that they actually had a relationship with. They're furious at the whole idea of giving Ben Gvir his own private army. We talked about this, or, or armed body. We talked about this uh, last episode. So all this does not create a great environment and is not good news for Netanyahu or for Israel. And it brought a very swift late night response, I think 1am mm-hmm. Israel time, Benjamin Net- Netanyahu tweeting a sort of mini thread of tweets in which he essentially said, you know, we've got a lovely close relationship, shared values, all the boilerplate stuff you'd expect, but then said, we are a sovereign country, make our own sovereign decisions, even if our best allies don't like them, essentially. That was the gist of it. And so this was 
by the standards or historically of the American-Israeli relationship, just not how that relationship is normally mm. conducted. And there are plenty of people, including now, not just former, who have long believed that the number one strategic asset Israel has is its alliance with the United States. You think of, you know, going back to Yitzhak Rabin, former ambassador in Washington, he thought that was the bedrock, rather, of Israel's own security, is its alliance with Washington. And I was struck by Benny Gantz, who's emerging as a kind of, you know, the, a, an alternative prime minister, a sort of de, or de facto leader of the opposition, in a way, mm -hmm. saying that this is the equivalent of a terror attack uh, in terms of its impact on Israel to be at odds with an American president. So it is huge um, doing it that way. I don't know about this point about why he did it after the back down or the climb down. You would, as you said, you would think um, it would precede it. I too did wonder about this point you made about the timing is slightly odd to do this shot across Netanyahu's bows after he has, in a way, gone back to harbour. I mean, it's an odd thing to do after the climb down, unless the Biden administration shares the fear I articulated when we talked earlier on in the week, which is, what if this is just a tactical pause by Netanyahu, admittedly forced on him, but a chance for him to regroup and come back with the same proposals unchanged? Was Joe Biden keen to say, you know, you're not getting that past us. You're not fooling us. That's why no meeting in the near term. We're going to wait to see how real you are about this withdrawal. Yeah, I think that's what it signals. We're sitting here six days after the U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Mark Milley said that Iran is months away. Actually, he said, if I'm not mistaken, Iran could produce enough material for a nuclear weapon within two weeks. Now, if anyone needs any proof of why Israel needs the United States on every level, strategic, financial, any sort of support, you know, this is just, you had ministers in the Likud saying, oh, we don't need the United States after Biden's statement, which really, um, you know, I'm not even going to dignify that with an explanation or an answer. I'm just saying another indication, and we're seeing that a lot and quite hurriedly in recent days of, of how this coalition is unstable and not in control. Even this basic fact of you ha you're having members of the Likud saying whatever they want instead of the party saying, guys, just don't talk about the United States at all. We don't need any extra fuel for this fire. Uh, and of course, in the wonderful idiosyncrasies that um, represent Israel, Yoav Gallant has not yet been fired. Isn't that amazing, Jonathan? This whole thing started because Netanyahu decided to fire him. He didn't send him the letter, so he's not yet fired. And now he's in this limbo situation. Netanyahu knows that if he actually fires him, again, the flames of the protest can rise. If he leaves, he stays there, then it's, you know, it's a very strange situation. Yeah, and there are these amazing photographs of him sitting around the cabinet table or sitting around in meetings. Right as if nothing happened. I mean, it's like, you know, a couple where one files for divorce, but they wake up the next morning, they're still <laughs> in the same kitchen making breakfast together. Sort of, You yes. know, they are continuing. I think that goes again to this sort of chaos point. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and there were reports, I think, of a d defense minister or another minister flying to Washington, then turning around, heading right back again on hearing of Gallant's firing. This is chaos. Yep. And it doesn't uh, augur well or, or project a sort of image that Israel would want of, of it being a stable 
dependable ally. And this is partly what the Biden administration are pushing back on. I also think there's just one bit of politics in this going back a long way. And remember, Biden has a very long memory of politics because he's been around so long. And so does Netanyahu, which is in the mid-90s, after the Rabin assassination, when Netanyahu became prime minister of Israel, I remember White House officials wondering how clear they could be in their differences with the new guy, Netanyahu, particularly actually then, it's times have changed, but in terms of American Jews, they thought, is it okay for an American president not to be on great terms with an Israeli prime minister? And there was polling that showed American Jews trusted Bill Clinton more mm. on Israel than they trusted Netanyahu. And that led a whole lot of people in the Clinton White House to feel freer in you know, upbraiding Netanyahu, in cold-shouldering him sometimes, because they realised they were seen as better custodians of the mm. peace process associated with Rabin than he was. I wonder if some of that is in Biden's memory, that he thinks, you know what, there's no downside to me being at odds with an Israeli prime minister who is himself at odds with these, you know, large swathes of the Israeli public, mm -hmm. and definitely, I don't even need to see polling, with American jury. So he's got lots of space here, lots of room for manoeuvre, dealing with the Prime Minister of Israel, who is currently unpopular mm -hmm. on the streets of Israel, but also unpopular mm -hmm. with the people who will figure largely in Biden's mind, which is Jewish American. Right. And let's add to that the fact that this is not Netanyahu, even Netanyahu dueling Obama, right, in 2015, because Netanyahu doesn't have the Congress. He doesn't have John Boehner. He doesn't have the support of a, a Republican Congress that will invite him over the head of the president. That doesn't exist anymore. This is an, a, you know, a contentious prime minister inside Israel and outside. And the amazing thing is, when you look at it, this is not an argument between the United States and Israel about settlements, about the Palestinians, about the Iran deal. This is an internal, uh, not exactly an internal issue, but it started as an internal issue in Israel. And this is the United States saying, we are waiting for you to make good on the promise to halt this and to have broad support. Um, and I think that is that is interesting to note, especially when the negotiations started in the president's uh, residence already. It's not a very, you know, no one really puts a lot of trust in it. On the one hand, Netanyahu says, well, I'm going to, you know, pass this reform in a few weeks. So that doesn't give a lot of trust on that. And on the other side, you have Yair Lapid saying Netanyahu is the biggest con artist in the history of Israel. So not the best mood for these kinds of negotiations, but they have started this week as well. Yeah, I was just about to ask you about those talks. That interests me a lot, whether they are uh, for show, Potemkin talks, or are, is any thing of substance going to come out of them. I mean, crucially, from my point of view, the opposition parties who have not been leading the opposition to this, mm -hmm. the opposition has come actually from the streets, they are following, taking their cue from the protesters on the streets. But do those opposition parties actually want to, you know, give some ground and get uh, some reforms to the judiciary? Or are they thinking, no, actually, we think any, you know, hands off the Supreme Court, we are not going to tolerate any kind of change? Well, to be honest, we talked about the poll numbers in our special update episode when Ben Gantz is seeing a surge from 12 seats to 23 seats. Yehli Lapid is at 22. That's a little bit less than he has today. I'm thinking they're eyeing an election more than they're eyeing anything else. If they're, you know, if they believe any sort of negotiations, anything can come out of this, maybe. But they both have, you know, something to gain from, from an election.
So now we want to talk to someone who is uh, uniquely situated to look at the specifics of what is going on in Israel, but also the significance of this to really the region and I think to world history. For our 100th episode, a very, very special guest indeed, a philosopher, a writer, a historian and author of what is surely the best-selling and most read work of history ever in the form of Sapiens, also the author of Homo Deus, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and others. He is, of course, Yuval Noah Harari. Huge privilege and pleasure to have you on Unholy again. You were on a previous episode, Your Need, which number was it? 33, sir. Episode 33. Always knows the answer to that question. Um, <laughs> Yuval, your whole thing that has made you um, sort of acclaimed across the world is that you see the very big picture and take the very long view of history, uh, watching for shifts and changes that span millennia. You aren't somebody who comes out and talks about whatever's going on just that week. And yet, in recent events, you have been out front and center speaking, writing, uh, getting involved. What is it about what's happened the last two or three months that strikes you as not just the flotsam and jetsam of daily news, but something of, I would guess, historical significance? Yeah, I think that Israel is now at the most important moment in its history since the founding of, of the state, since 1948. I usually stay away from Israeli politics. I, I don't feel I have the expertise. Also, I, I feel that uh, I have more important things to do. Uh, but now it's a combination of several things. I mean, first, my, my own house is on fire. So before you can attend to anything else, you have first to put the, the fire in, in, in your home, own house. And yes, what's happening now will define not just Israel, but maybe much of the region for many years to come. Especially for people outside Israel, it should be very clear that the consequences of the power grab by the Netanyahu government, if we don't stop it, it will spill over to the entire region. I hear many people comparing what's happening in Israel to what happened, say, in Hungary. Israel will not be like Hungary, nothing like Hungary. Hungary is still a member of the European Union. Hungary doesn't hold millions of people under occupation. Hungary doesn't have nuclear weapons. Hungary doesn't have cyber capabilities, which are uh, cyber weapons capable of striking anywhere in the world. Hungary doesn't have hundreds of thousands of religious zealots with an expansionist plan. So if we don't stop the anti-democratic coup in Israel, it could set the entire Middle East on fire with consequences far beyond the borders of Israel. So you're actually saying this can become, you know, heaven forbid, a much more dangerous country than Hungary or Poland and any of the sort of obvious examples that we're trying to yeah. give. That, that's, yeah. you know, that's a stark exactly. warning. Again, as Israelis, we are absorbed by, by our own fate. And, and mm -hmm. you know, for good reason. I mean, people who were not interested in politics at all, were not involved in politics at all, they are now demonstrating in the streets because they realize it has reached their own life, mm -hmm. that their own personal liberties are now at stake. You know, we have this chametz um, law. I don't know how to translate it to, to, to English. But this is just a very, very small example of the intentions of this government. Next week, 
we are going probably to see security personnel at the entrance to public hospitals going through people's bags looking not for bombs, but for bread. Because the, this government has passed a, a law which basically says that if you're Christians, Muslims, secular people, atheists, they have to follow Jewish Orthodox dietary laws in the public hospitals. And this is just, you know, this, this very symbolic type of move. And if the government, what, what the government is doing, you know, is not just about a Supreme Court overhaul, as, as some of the newspapers call it. Uh, the Supreme Court is not the main issue. The main issue is the attempt by the government to gain unlimited power. And if it succeeds, then it will uh, uh, run over our personal liberties. And this is what gets hundreds of thousands of Israelis into the, the streets. But again, we mostly think about how it affects our personal lives. The bigger picture is that it could set fire to the entire region with consequences, terrible consequences, for tens of millions of people around us. Uh, because again, we are talking about many of the forces, the people who are leading this anti-democratic power grab, they have a messianic worldview. And when they get this kind of power into their hands, it is going to become extremely dangerous for everybody around us. That, that reference you make to uh, people's bags being checked and being frisked in case they've got any chametz, any unleavened bread as we go into the Passover period, prompted me to th remember a line from this address you made to one of the protests that, that got international attention. We republished it in The Guardian and it got a big audience. And one of the points in there was a second Pesach reference. You said, in effect, you've picked the wrong people to try and enslave. Uh, you know, we have some history with this, referring to the experience of the Hebrew slaves in Egypt thousands of years ago. It makes me think when even just that image of people checking, having their bags checked for what food they've got inside. Uh, no, that won't happen, Yuval, because these, you know, the Israeli people just won't tolerate that. They wouldn't stomach that. Given your, again, very big sweep and your view of, hum you know, you write histories of humanity, is that actually a kind of self-flattering delusion for me to imagine, which I do, that Israelis and Jews actually won't put up with this? Is it your fear that kind of this can happen to any people and actually people do put up with this sort yeah. of thing? The danger is we need to stand up. Now we now have the ability to stop it. But if we don't act in time, what we know is that when, when people don't have the courage to stand up to a dictatorship, when the dictatorship is being established, later on it's too late. Mm. They will not have the courage to stand up to the dictatorship when it already controls the police and the courts and the media and, and everything. Mm -hmm. So we have to do it now. And unfortunately, um, yes, there are many Israelis and, 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 and the Jews and others who won't stand up to it. But there are also large parts of the Israeli public who are in favor of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, this is, makes the situation extremely problematic. And what, you know, Israel, Israeli democracy had very weak defenses since its inception. Mm -hmm. What people often don't understand when they, again, in other countries, when they hear about the attempt by the Israeli government to take control of the Supreme Court, so they say, okay, so the government takes control of the Supreme Court. That, that's, that's a limited step, right? It's not. Because 
for historical reasons, in Israel, the only mechanism that limits the power of the government is only the Supreme Court. You know, you compare this to the United States, let's say that the House of Representatives, there is majority in the House of Representatives to pass a bill which forces everybody not to eat bread for, for a week. Yeah? Um, this bill, in order to become the law of the land, would have to pass through a lot of big obstacles. It's not in, you have the Senate, and in the Senate, you have the filibuster. So probably a law that says Americans can't eat bread for a week, it will have to gain 60% majority in the Senate. If it passes the Senate, it goes to the president. He can veto it. It passes the president, you still have the Constitution, of course, and the Supreme Court. You can appeal to the Supreme Court, hey, this is unconstitutional. Who are you to tell me what to eat? And then even if it passes somehow the Supreme Court, you have 50 states and there are state rights. There is a federal system. So Texas can say and California can say, okay, we don't take these orders from the federal House of Representatives about what we can eat. There is an entire obstacle race for this kind of law. In Israel, there isn't an obstacle race. There is just one obstacle, the Supreme Court. And now they try to take over the Supreme Court. So it's not about the Supreme Court. It's about gaining unlimited power. And this is, I think, the most important thing we need to, the, the question we should ask again and again is what limits the power of the government? But there is the Israeli public. And, you know, you, we mentioned Hungary. We just had a special report about Hungary and Poland. There's the uh, former governor of the Bank of Poland saying, our mistake was we didn't realize in time what was happening and we didn't flood the streets. The Israelis did flood the streets. They did yes. realize immediately and profoundly what was going on. And we are 13 weeks into this and Netanyahu has at least strategically, maybe for a while, maybe, you know, just for show and to lull the opposition, but he did take a step forward. He did say, we are suspending this legislation. It's not going to pass in this he session. He didn't take, I mean, we stopped him. Yes, of course. I it, very, very not, we, I, it wasn't his initiative. We stopped The streets stopped him. And him and, you know, yes, and it was the most successful protest in the history of Israel. I think we can say that for, for sure. And, and I think we should, we should be thankful for the Poles mm -hmm. and for the Hungarians because we have learned from their experience. Mm -hmm. I'm not convinced that Israelis are inherently smarter than Hungarians and, and Poles, but we learned from their experience. And mm -hmm. people saw through the lies and the smokescreen that the government spread, and they went in their hundreds of thousands to the streets, and we stopped them. And, you know, we, it, there is still a long struggle ahead, but uh, we should feel proud, at mm -hmm. least of this initial achievement. So you're calling it an initial achievement. I wonder if that means, because when this started out, you you said there's there, we can't go back. There are two options. Yeah. Either this is going to be a dictatorship or a stronger democracy. Yeah. Are you How optimistic are you? I mean, on that pendulum, where does it swing today? Is it swinging towards a stronger democracy in your sort of feeling of things? Again, I mean, you know, on Sunday evening, I came back from university, uh, 8 mm -hmm. o'clock, 8.30. I have a long day in the university. And as I entered the house, there was the news that Netanyahu has just fired the defense minister, Gallant, for simply raising the alarm about the situation being dangerous for Israel's security and the need to slow down and to, and to talk and to try to reach some kind of compromise. And for that, he was fired. Mm -hmm. And I, 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 I went in, into panic mode. I said, this is it. Like, he has completely lost his mind. He's completely lost it. And uh, maybe now we are on the verge of, of civil war. 
And then within hours, you saw the reaction of the Israeli public. I wasn't the only one that was shocked by this step. You saw spontaneously tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people pouring into the streets. It wasn't a planned demonstration, like the big demonstrations on Saturday nights. It was completely spontaneous. People just going to the streets and young people and people from all walks of life. And then one after the other, you saw important institutions and organizations in Israel getting off the fence. Mm -hmm. The universities, which debated it for weeks, resolved within the hour, we are striking tomorrow, we go on strike. And then you heard from the history route, from the uh, 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 union, of, of, of the trade union. Mm -hmm. Israel is going on a general strike. And you had this amazing image of the uh, Mazkal, general secretary of the mm -hmm. trade unions, surrounded by the heads of the banks and the industrialists. And they are all clapping him that you are our leader. Yes, we go on strike. And he's a Likud guy, Baudavid. He's from the Likud. Mm -hmm. And then you had, I think, 30-something heads of municipalities and regional councils, again, some of them Likud members, saying not only that they are going on strike tomorrow, they are going on hunger strike. They are personally going to Jerusalem and going on hunger strike until this is stopped. And when this happens, I said, okay, we can win this. If this alliance between, again, the demonstrators in the street and the trade unionists and the universities and the local councils and municipalities, and, and so if, if this alliance holds, we can win this. And win doesn't just mean to stop the coup, mm -hmm. to stop the government from taking unlimited power. It means writing a new social contract for Israel because, as you said, you, we can't go back mm -hmm. to where we were in November 22. Um, as I said in the earlier, Israel has very weak defenses for its democracy. It's basically just the Supreme Court, nothing else. It held for 75 years because nobody really challenged it. Mm -hmm. There was no significant force in Israel that tried to establish a dictatorship. Now there is such a force. They will try again. So we must come out of this crisis with stronger defenses, not, not compromise on anything. We need stronger defenses. So two things that come out of that. The first is a very immediate practical thing. I was very moved watching from afar the sight that you've described of people spontaneously uh, going into the streets and the uh, strikes that united unions and bosses. It's mm -hmm. very powerful. But my worry, I've already aired it with Yonit earlier on in the week, is that is that one of those things that happens once? Is it very hard to get people to do that again? Or do people get tired? In other words, Netanyahu, yes, he was forced into it. But has he tactically actually made his first smart move in a long time? Because now he's requiring the other side to, you know, pause and get the, all the momentum back up again and do it again. That's my sort of immediate question. But your, but the more interesting point is the one you've raised, which is the notion of this stronger democracy and a new social contract. I mean, again, you're as a student of history, those moments when countries do draw up a new constitution, you know, in my limited knowledge, they either happen when the country is founded, yeah. Philadelphia in 1787, or they happen after total destruction. I mean, you know, Germany in 1945, Japan in 1945. Mm -hmm. uh, in the situation that Israel is in now, can you really imagine the likes of 
Itamar Ben Gvir on one side and, uh, you know, Merav Michaeli on the other, joining for a constitutional convention and sitting down and agreeing to new rules of the game. Is this the kind of historical moment that is required yes. to birth a new social contract like the one you've referred to? Yes, otherwise we are heading towards uh, either dictatorship or civil war because democracy cannot hold on for long without a new social contract. What will happen? I don't know. I hope that Israelis will have the wisdom to avoid dictatorship or civil war and instead go for the better option of creating a new social contract. Now, what would be the shape of that contract? I, I, I mean, there are many options. It, people talk about the constitution. We've failed to write a constitution for 75 years. Maybe we can't do it. So there are other options. Again, when we, I talked about the United States, so they have these like five or six different types of defenses of democracy besides the Supreme Court. The Constitution is just one of them. Mm -hmm. So maybe if we can't get to the Constitution, maybe we need a Senate, an, an upper house, and a federal system, some kind of federal system. So uh, a clearer division of power between the central government and local regional councils and municipalities give more independent power to the regional forces. So uh, they give some protection for different minorities in Israel. And you have a Senate, which is chosen by a different method from the House of Representatives, in which, again, the, the, the key groups in Israel would have some kind of veto power over decisions that endanger their core values and interests. The big question always to ask in this situation, when you have a country divided into different and even hostile tribes, is for each tribe to investigate, contemplate, what is really my red lines? What are the things that I just can't live without? Mm -hmm. That if they touch this, then either we have civil war or we have to immigrate or what are really the things, I, I, I can't compromise on this. Now, if you find that you have two or more tribes which have these core interests which collide, then it's hopeless. You either divide the country, you have a dictatorship, somebody needs to emigrate, or you have a civil war. But in many cases, this is not the case. That I think that in Israel, secular people and religious people, they have different core interests. If you come to religious people and tell them, you know, we, we want to forbid you to circumcise your, your sons or we want to forbid you to eat kosher food, then, you know, this is Yehalek Vebaliyav. Mm -hmm. I mean, no. But this is not our core interest. We don't want to force religious people to stop practicing Orthodox Judaism as they understand it. But we, for, our, for us, core interest is our, our basic liberties, like freedom of expression, that I can sit here in Tel Aviv and have this conversation with you, criticizing the government, without being afraid that as a result, I'll have policemen knocking on my door and taking me into jail. This is for me, Yehalek Vebaliavu. If I don't have, or maybe I'm not a martyr type, so maybe it's Yehagel Vebaliavu. But okay, if it reaches that point, then I won't be in Israel. But I don't see a clash there. I don't think that religious people, most of them, I don't know about Bengal, but I think most religious people, they don't, it's not their core interest to take away my freedom of expression. And uh, hopefully we can reach these kinds of, of again, 
four or five different main tribes in Israel that each define their core interests and find a solution that protects these core interests. And about the other stuff, we can compromise. I mean, we talked about not eating unleavened bread in hospitals during Passover. If this will be the, the, the concession we have to make, then, okay, I won't eat unleavened bread in a hospital for the week. If that saves Israel from civil war and enables us to go on living together in a democracy, that's a concession I'm willing to make. You know, I have to say that uh, the options of the dictatorship or civil war, not the greatest present to receive on Israel's 75th uh, <laughs> independence. But, uh, you know, we talk about this dichotomy. It's either a stronger democracy or a dictatorship. I have a third option because yes. Israel, I mean, we have to... Maybe it's the cynical option, but I mean, Israel is, let's admit, our character is haphazard, it's disorganized. I mean, what if this is what happens, all right? Netanyahu shelves this uh, uh, legislation because it's toxic for him, his, his numbers in the polls are tanking, his coalition is fractured. He's saying, let's wait with this for another six months, and then it's Israel, and we know the cycle, there's going to be, you know, we know war and elections, and the whole thing is going to be sidelined, and the focus is going to move elsewhere, and the Israeli public is sort of going to forget about this until the next time we realize that there is a very strong leader who knows that the system is all built on the fact that he can change basic laws with a 61 majority or with a, even a simple majority. I mean, isn't the, the the sort of reality of this is that eventually in the cycle of, of the intensity of our lives, this is going to sort of move aside? I'm not saying that's a good mm. thing. No, I'm just I'm, saying I'm, I, 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 don't, I don't think it will happen. People received okay. such a shock that they won't mm -hmm. forget. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and people around me, they, have, they, they haven't slept for weeks a proper night's sleep because they are terrified. Mm -hmm. This is not the kind of thing that you can forget. And, you know, even talking in, 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 in very materialistic terms, um, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm following what's happening in the high-tech sector. So, you know, um, people who already established their company here, it's very difficult to take it out. So we don't see this rush of companies leaving Israel because they have an exit tax. It's too complicated. But people are not opening new companies here. Investors are not invest, And this is not something you forget. If I now want to open a new startup, many people around me, I, I won't do it in Israel, but I'm crazy. Who knows what will happen even if we stop them now? What happens in a year or two years? I open it in, I don't know, in California or I open it in, in Europe somewhere. And... Mm -hmm. It's very clear that it's not just Netanyahu with his trial and trying to get out of corruption charges and so forth. There is a significant force that is really interested in unlimited power and in running over the rest of Israeli society. And um, they have plans which they talk about openly. For instance, to annex the occupied territories without giving any citizenship rights to the indigenous people, to the Palestinians. And they have the Supreme Court in their sights, not because of Netanyahu's trial, but because they think, rightly or wrongly, I don't know, because the Supreme Court so far has not been a huge opponent of the occupation, but they think that they, they first have to get rid of the Supreme Court before they can do that. And you have, again, a, a large cohort of messianic zealots, that, and they are not going anywhere. They are just increasing in numbers. And we need to put guardrails against their plans. We must 
exit this crisis with, with guardrails against it, neither side is, is, is going to, to, to forget. Mm-hmm. And maybe listening from, from another country, it, it really sounds, it can't be, it's insane. But when you live here, you know that you have hundreds of thousands of people who really think in messianic terms about Israeli history. And if they gain power, if they gain unlimited power, the, the place this, we are heading towards the temple. It ends with the temple and with the probable destruction of Israel and much of the Middle East, if, if they attempt to, to do it. But this is the deep logic of messianic projects. You, you see it many, many times in history. You have ordinary politics. Ordinary politics is when somebody promises, you know, to raise minimum wages, to improve the quality of life of the lower classes, to do some limited educational reform. It will not create paradise on earth, but it will improve people's life. This is ordinary politics, the good kind of politics. Then you have the politics of redemption, messianic politics, when you have somebody or some group promising redemption, paradise, here on earth. It could be religious, it could be also secular, like with communism. Now, the problem with redemption is that it never works. There is no paradise on earth. So, as they gain power by promising people redemption, and it, it, it doesn't materialize, they all the time have to go further and further. They can't admit that they failed, they can't, that they can't reach paradise. So they constantly blame somebody for, for, for standing in the way of paradise and increasing the, the, the stakes. And in the case of Israel, we have people who think that paradise is the next hill. If we only take this hill, if we only build one more settlement on one more hill, then redemption will come. And they build a settlement on one hill and a second hill and a third hill, and redemption doesn't come. Life goes on. People are sick. People are, are mean to each other. There are injustices. There are problems. So it's the next hill. It's the next hill until they reach the mountain. They will not stop until they get to the mountain. And I'm talking about, of course, Temple Mount. Mm-hmm. And when they get to the mountain, they will set fire to the whole Middle East. And, you know, if, if, if you want to, to, one more thing, if you want to think in biblical terms, I'm not a great fan of the Bible, but sometimes there are very good parts there. And you have Bashal Yotam. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when the trees, the trees want a king, and the trees go to this thorny bush and, uh, and, 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 and want this thorny bush to be their, their king, and it ends with fire coming out mm-hmm. of the thorny bush and destroying all, all the trees. And if we take that road, if we set a king over us, a fire will come out of it and will destroy the whole Middle East. Only on Unholy will you get Yuval Noah Harari teaching a little bit of Torah, to <laughs> um, but in such a useful way. Uh, you, you partly touched on it just a moment ago when you mentioned occupation. And I got a text message from an activist involved in, in, in organizing some demonstrations who says, said to me, you know, I'm trying to be the person who mentions the occupation elephant in the room. That's been a whole discussion. We've talked about this earlier uh, through the whole last three months, the extent to which the demonstrations are talking only about 
as it were, inside Israel itself rather yeah. than the what happens in the occupied territories. But when you talk about uh, the possibility of a stronger democracy or even a new social contract, even a constitution, look, difficult enough anyway mm-hmm. for all the reasons you've described with these warring tribes, socially speaking, inside as it were, Jewish Israel, really, or in any way in terms of 1967 Israel, it gets complicated when you add in those territories that Israel controls. Can Israel make any kind of stronger democracy unless it also grapples with and wrestles with what my friend called the occupation elephant in the room? Uh, this will definitely be part of, 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 of the problem. Again, the same way we haven't managed to write a constitution in 75 years, we haven't managed to deal properly with, with the occupation for more than 50 years. And it's not going to be easy. <laughs> I don't know. Because with the occupation, it's not just about Israelis trying to reach some agreement with other Israelis. You have an, another power you have to deal with, with the Palestinians. And we have not been very successful. And we can go into the argument about who's to blame and why not, but probably the the, the there is enough blame to share between everybody about why it wasn't uh, uh, successful. To me, it's clear that if Israel ceases to be a democracy, then uh, it will also have terrible consequences in, in the occupied territories and, and beyond the, the, the borders of, of Israel. As bad as things are for the Palestinians under an Israeli democracy, it will be far, far worse under an Israeli dictatorship. Mm-hmm. So. I think also, for if, if you think about those issues, the order of the day is, first of all, to prevent the, uh, the establishment of a dictatorial regime in Israel. You know, after the disengagement from Gaza in 2005, Israel dismantling settlements, uh, a huge blow for the settlers, the religious Zionists, they went through a process of, of soul-searching. They, they lamented the fact that they failed to settle in people's hearts. So the plan was to send more representatives of the community into spheres of influence, mainly the Israeli media and other realms. And I wonder what you think that secular liberal Israel needs to learn from that or to take from that crisis. What, what are the action items? So aside from, again, pushing for a new social contract for Israel, the other key thing is the educational system. What we had for, for, for decades is that you have two groups in Israel with very strong ideological educational system. You have the Haredi and you have the religious Zionists, and they have separate independent educational systems which are completely ideological, unapologetic about it. They are committed to educating their younger generations to a very specific uh, worldview. At the same time, in the kind of secular education, no, 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 no. It's, it's forbidden to have ideological education. It should not be, it should be completely balanced. You shouldn't educate your young, young generation, your, your kids to any specific ideology or set of values. And now we see the consequences that on the one side, you have very committed ideological camp. On the other side, you see people who went through 12 years of school and they don't understand even what democracy is. They confuse democracy with majority dictatorship. You ask them, okay, if 51% of, of, of citizens want to put to death 1% of the citizens, like we now had in Uganda, a law that 
uh, imposes death penalty on LGBT people. And 387, I think, parliament members in Uganda voted for, and only two courageous parliament members voted against. And you know, is this democratic? Okay, they are the majority. Can the majority take 1% of people and just exterminate them? And you would think that at least in Israel, with the history of the Jewish people, everybody will immediately say, well, obviously not, you can't do that. But you hear young people becoming confused. Oh, uh, yes, I mean, it, it doesn't sound very good that you can exterminate 1% of the people, but, you know, if the majority wants it, then it's democratic, no? And, you know, it's, it's something that 10-year-olds should be able to <laughs> give a very clear and immediate answer. No, this is not democratic. Mm -hmm. Democracy is not majority dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, democracy, yes, the majority has a lot of power. They can choose the government. They can decide to go to war or make peace or raise taxes or anything they want. But there are human rights and civil rights, and the majority cannot touch these rights. And people don't understand this. Mm -hmm. So we need an overhaul of the secular educational system to start to, to turn it into an ideological educational system which unapologetically educates the next generation for values of democracy and tolerance and liberalism. Can I ask, um, in a way, a very personal question, which is, and, and I think it's partly because people look to you and people like you for a, a lead. Are you committed to this fight for the, what could be a very long haul or, and I think you sort of hinted at it just yeah. before, is there a, a moment where you say, look, our side lost, the religious zealots that you've talked about, the others, they've won, and therefore I will leave this country mm -hmm. behind and go somewhere else? Yeah, my loyalty ultimately is to the spirit, not to the earth, not to the land, not to the soil. I will stay here as long as it's possible to continue struggling for our liberty. But as a historian, I know that there are moments when, uh, you know, if, if we fail, if we have a Putin-style dictatorship in Israel, then the only way to really, maybe the best way to continue the struggle is to uh, move elsewhere and continue from there because uh, you can't do it here. We saw it, I don't know, in Spain, after three years of civil war, Eventually, the fascists won. Franco won. And it became, and unless you, you're willing to be a martyr and, and be killed, then you can't resist anymore from within. And then people left Spain and, 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 and started these uh, resistance cells outside, which eventually came back to Spain after the death of Franco. Mm -hmm. So I very, very much hope that we won't get there in Israel. But uh, there is a certain point, then, then yes. I mean, for instance, again, also in, in terms of my, my, my job, I mean, my, my day job is, is to not deal with Israeli politics, but, you know, I mean, uh, deal with the big challenges of, of humanity, whether it's climate change, whether it's artificial intelligence. And to do that, I need to, work, to, to be in a place which guarantees freedom of expression. Uh, if, if freedom of expression is no lo longer guaranteed in Israel, I just can't work from here anymore. And, you know, over the last few weeks, the, the little time I had from dealing with, with the Israeli crisis, what's happening with artificial intelligence in the last few weeks is absolutely mind-boggling. That um, I, just this morning, I saw a video produced by either ChatGPT or GPT-4, one of these new AI things, 
somebody prompted it to create, write a script for a South Park episode about uh, the, the anti-democratic coup in Israel. Yeah. It created a two and a half minutes script, which I saw it this morning and I said, the game is up. This is the end of human history. Not the end of history, just the end of human history. Control, as the, the, there is somebody else in control now. Because this script was absolutely amazing. It, I thought it was too sophisticated to be uh, ChatGPT. It was too edited, too sophisticated. Yeah, I, so, indeed, so maybe I was it's fooled. It's unbelievable. Maybe I was fooled. I don't know. It's amazing. Maybe it's I mean, not... the minute they mentioned the Grand Miser, the Smotrich's not speaking English, I thought, hmm, that's too much. Yes, but this is also my GPT, suspicion. It's genius. So it, it's only this morning I, I let my fact checkers uh, delve yep. into it to find out, is this really something that an AI <laughs> did? Or is this just a kind of joke that people did it and pass it as, mm -hmm. as an AI thing? So I don't know, but if it is AI, then really the game is up. Then we're done. Then we're done. Maybe we can let robots rule the world. They might do a better job. I'm just saying. I'm, I'm not. But, I, I'm um, afraid they won't. I'm afraid they won't. Okay. This is why I'm, I'm very, very concerned about it. But um, this is what I really wanted to do right now. I'm writing a new book about the AI revolution. Mm -hmm. And I don't have time for it because I'm dealing with the anti-democratic revolution in Israel. It's interesting because last time we talked on episode 33, Jonathan, I'm sure you remember that, uh, we, uh, we were talking to you right before your retreat. You, this is the secret to your success. We know this now. You do not talk and you leave the world as it is for two months. And you sort of emerged from it a few weeks ago just to be sort of updated on the fact that Israel is in this turmoil. C could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, had, uh, I went to a 60 days silent retreat in India. Mm -hmm. I started it, it was the 17th of December. So I already knew about, of course, the results of the elections. But Yair Lapid was still the prime minister <laughs> of Israel. And, you know, I had, we had lots of discussions before and I had lots of scenarios. Okay, so it's going to be a far-right government with Bibi and Ben Gvir and Smutrich and how will it be? There are all kinds of scenarios. None of them was even close to the awful reality that confronted me when I came out on the 17th of February. It was So that's a month and a half into Yariv Levine yes. presenting his I plan. Mean, it's what, really what the Israelis of... had a month and a half to absorb, <laughs> I had to absorb in a, in a day and a half. Like I was calling from India to, to my family and friends, hey, how, how are things? And they said, you don't want to know. Just, just go, back, <laughs> go back to the retreat. You don't want to know. <laughs> Amazing. But you did maintain the 60 days. I thought what you were going to tell us was that you left instructions saying, if things get really crazy, <laughs> you know, you're allowed to kind of shake me, wake me up and tell me what's going on. But no one did that. No one no. said you've had time to start talking. This is happening. No. You, you got out when, it was, when, when you did your 60 days. I, I think I've, I, I've, I've kind of uh, done enough talking after, you know, in the last month for the whole two months of silence that, that, that was, came before. It is. It is important that you that you talk. I I, I did want to mention to you since you are your recent uh, children's book came out in autumn. It's called Unstoppable Us: uh, How Humans Took Over the World. That whole thing. How do you manage now that you're also this activist and one of the more vocal voices of the protest movement? How does it all work together, or it doesn't? You it sort doesn't. Of put your work aside, uh, I, and you're I, now doing this. Like I have my my to do list is so long and it just more and more things come on it. So again, 
when the house is on fire, this is the first priority. You first put, yeah. try to, to, to put down the, the fire. Mm-hmm. In between, yeah, I wrote this column to the New York Times together with uh, uh, Tristan Harris and the people from, from the Center of Humane Technology about the dangers of AI. And I'm, I'm working also now on the third volume of the children's book. The second volume is already like done. It should be out uh, late, later this, this year, probably. So now I'm working on the third volume. And in between, you know, Kaplan demonstrations and, and, and uh, appearances on TV. So I got back to the children's book. And it's, it, it, you know, important for, for, for uh, one's sanity that mm-hmm. you just can't be all the time just uh, uh, dealing with that. You, you need to kind of keep a broader perspective. But uh, uh, again, the, the, the political upheavals, they now come first. Yuval Noah Harari, thank you so much for this conversation. I can't pretend it's hugely lifted our spirits, <laughs> um, but it has, I think, um, given us a, a perspective and perhaps actually given people some steel for what is uh, coming So next. maybe I'll, I think I'll, uh, we are really grateful. And maybe I'll just say another thing. I mean, for people listening to us from outside Israel, Mm-hmm. So maybe two, two things, very important. First of all, it's not easy to understand what's happening here, especially because of the propaganda campaign of the government. And whenever people ov- try to kind of distract you uh, with all these details about the committee for selecting the judges and this little detail or that little detail, there is one question we need to come back to again and again and again when we try to understand what's happening or when we are confronted by people who support the government coup. And this question is, what limits the power of the government? That, okay, whatever you say, we do this, we do that, just explain to me. What is the mechanism that will limit the power of a ruling coalition in Israel? If they want to pass a law that takes away voting rights from Arab citizens, and they have been talking about it, What prevents it? If it's not the Supreme Court, explain to us what is the mechanism. And again and again, when you ask Yariv Levine and Simcha Lotman and these people, what is the mechanism? They don't, the only thing they say is trust us. We don't want, we don't don't intend to do it. And this is not a good answer. This is not a good answer. It's a very frightening answer. It's the answer of every dictator, of every abusive partner, of every abusive parent. Yes, trust us. We will take care of you. We will protect you. But don't lose our goodwill, right? We don't want to lose our goodwill. We want to be in our good graces uh, because nothing else protects you except our goodwill. So this is the question to ask. And if, if they, there is another answer they give, which is, oh, there are elections. If the public doesn't like what we do, then in four years, they go to the polls and they can remove us. This is disingenuous. Once a government has unlimited power, it can change the rules of the elections. It can rig the elections very easily. Uh, Russia has elections every four years, like a clock. Um, They can't remove Putin. In Israel also, if they gain unlimited power, the elections will no longer be democratic. They will rig them. And so that's the one thing to to, to remember, to ask. The other thing is, okay, how can we help? If I'm living in the USA, if I'm living in Australia, if I'm living in the UK, what, what can I do? You know, it's very simple. Stand by us. Mm-hmm. We need your help. We need your support. Whether, again, whoever you are, you can provide moral support. 
if you have you know, economic or political power, you can support us in, in other ways. But we need your support. And the time is now. If you wait a few weeks or a few months, it could be too late that anybody who cares about Israel, about the future of the Jewish people, about the future of the Middle East, the time to act is now. Yuval, thank you so much for this. It's been uh, it's really illuminating conversation. And, uh, and I say, uh, you know, I think it will actually, uh, in some ways, lift the spirits, inspire people who are involved in all this. So thank you very much for coming on Unholy. Thank you. Thank you very much. He's uh, uh, such a deep thinker that the bird's eye view is ability to sort of peer into the future. I do think that many listeners hearing his description right at the beginning of our conversation of what would happen if Israel becomes a dictatorship. He didn't say the word Iran, but it, the description kind of sounded like it. I think listeners, even if some listeners, even if they completely agree with him and his warnings, could feel like maybe that's a bit too far, right? That Israel would never become that kind of country, that it's not in our DNA. Um, and you can point out to things like hundreds of thousands of zealots that could be, again, in the, in the ears of some of the listeners, exaggerated. But he is obviously trying to sound the alarm and to turn the light on as bright as possible on the story so that even people who don't care about, you know, Israel or the crisis would understand why, why this is dangerous. Very much. I mean, alarming, absolutely. He is sounding the alarm. He's very deliberate. Right. I, I think the thing that struck me, besides all the sort of insights and observations, is, is almost just quite the personal thing. If here's a guy who really spends his time, wants to look at the big picture and has all kinds of other things, the climate crisis, AI, that really preoccupy him. But right now, he's sort of putting down his pen mm -hmm. and his history books and he's coming out into the public square to say listen, everyone, the house is on fire. And um, I found that quite sort of moving, really, because he occupies, you know, this very lofty plane. He is one of the most esteemed thinkers in the world, who people turn to for really the big picture perspective on humanity. And right now, he's getting involved in his own backyard mm -hmm. and get rolling up his sleeves, you know, he's really getting stuck in, speaking at the demonstrations, etc. I think that's very indicative of how seriously he takes all this. So a great um, privilege again to have Yuval Noah Harari join us for our 100th edition. Talking of 100th uh, editions. You noticed that, huh? We, yeah, I mean, I, you know, you know, if it was left to me, of course, I'd have lost count a long time ago. <laughs> but luckily, you're there to, um, to remain across the canon of the uh, Unholy Back catalogue. We've been privileged to speak to some really fascinating people people who are just involved in the world, but also involved in the Jewish conversation. And so we're grateful to all of them. So we're just picking out a couple of bits that just somehow convey the flavor of what it is we've been doing here. And so I uh, lighted upon a fairly recent guest, actually, in the form of Etka Keret, who is one of Israel's foremost novelists, a brilliant sort of sometimes surreal comic, but very heartfelt writer. He came on, talked to us about some recent work he's been doing on his own mother. That was a really lovely episode. People can go back and listen to it. You only remember 91. 91, you see. It's only nine episodes ago. It's a really lovely one. But there was one moment where we had a little exchange, which in some ways, Yoni and I have been saying, this really brings out something of the essence of what Unholy is really all about. You know, Yoni mentioned um, David Grossman before. And he has this thing where he says, if he had to describe 
who he is and in the order of what's most important. I think he would say that he was Jewish, male, Israeli, in that order. But it was interesting to me, the order, it may have been male, Jewish, Israeli, but the important point was that Jewish came before Israel. And the New York Times wrote about this. It said that Keret, about you, it said Keret might be classified more as a Jewish than an Israeli writer. I don't know what you your answer to the Grossman question would be, which order you'd put those three things, if those would be the three important things. But is there some truth in that about you being a more Jewish voice than an Israeli voice, do you think? Yeah, well, I wouldn't know where to put the male thing, you know. I probably just put it somewhere on the shelf. But, but I'm, I'm definitely, I would see myself Jewish before I see myself as Israeli. Because as my mom would say, the Nazis had decided that for us. You know, it's really like the idea is that uh, I can immigrate from Israel, but apparently I can't stop being Jewish, you know. And my heritage has come from that the history of my family is not from Israel. To be honest, I don't feel very strongly attached to national identities. I know it's not a nice thing to say, but basically I feel that, there, that I'm kind of a diaspora Jew in the sense that if you put me in a room with five people, I will already feel a minority. <laughs> I'm most likely to disagree with most of them and to feel oppressed by the others, you know? So I think that for me, being Jewish is really this idea that when I, I studied in elementary school, I said to myself, wow, you know, we Jews... We would argue with anybody, even with God. Look at all our heroes, Abraham, Job, you know, Jonah. You know, God said to them, go and do that. And they say, oh, no, we don't. You don't know anything about this word, God. And I think that this idea is that, you know, in Judaism, you learn in Hevruta, you know, in Perth, because you learn through polemic and through argument. For me, Israel is first and foremost a place. It's a bunch of people. It's a language. It's a dynamic of society that I feel attached to much more than a flag or some kind of a big speech that keeps you at all. Yeah, I'm quite surprised none of us said that we should start with neurotic Jewish and then the rest. But okay. Can't, that kind I of do, Jewish is <laughs> it kind of, of implied. It's implied. That, it's implied. Yes, it's implied. Um, I'm too neurotic to be a male. <laughs> exactly. I, I love that bit. I mean, I, it's, first of all, I, I think it really does. It's like, really the essence of our conversation, but just how Edgar is so, he talks the way he writes. It's, it's smart and it's funny and it's, it's unique and it's quirky. I mean, it's just, I love this part. Um, it is. And uh, I picked mine. Uh, it's very hard to pick your favorite, like, unholy moment. It's difficult. And we, uh, by the way, we'd urge our listeners to pick theirs um, on Instagram. Oh, and let us Facebook know. And let us know. And do let us know. If you have a particular choice moment, you can let us know on Instagram. It can be just, and it doesn't podcast, have to be with an Facebook. interviewee. It can be just one mm. of those uh, episodes where I prove Jonathan wrong and you like it. So you could point that out. Um, but um, there are a few of those. And uh, so I picked my, I, I'm not saying this is the most important question we ever asked on Unholy, but I think it comes close because we brought on uh, Mime Bialik, who's obviously um, the host of Jeopardy and the star of The Big Bang Theory. And she's very, you know, she's very clearly pro-Israel. And she talks about that in Hollywood and, and the challenges that that entails. We talked about all of that. She's also a neurologist. And I had a very particular question for her that I really needed uh, her expertise on. So let's listen in. I remember you talking about the very um, sort of at length, the difference between what a nerd and a geek is. And I'm not, you know, I have to have your thinking on this because um, Jonathan Friedland, on the one hand, doesn't read science fiction or fantasy at all. Okay. Like you say Lord of the Rings to him, he thinks it's a jewelry store. On the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, 
Oxford, wrote 12 books. Look at the size of his library. Could you just solve this to be a, a nerd? nerd. Not look a at the size of his glasses. He's a, he's a nerd. So he's nerd. Not a, okay, so nerd. Okay. Got it. Okay, just you, wanted you to can make be sure a nerd. I need an expert. Be a nerd. Yeah, you can be a nerd and a geek if you'd like to be. Okay. You're neat. Do you think step forward, you're neat, Levy, do you think, for the double title? Because <laughs> you, because you're neat okay. is a science fiction, I, I would say, obsessive and, true, true, and true. fantasy and have like done like three. You, how many degrees had you done by the time you were 25? Four, I think three. Four. Four. I think you, you, get, the, sure you get both. I get she both. She gets it's nerd like and geek. Double Jeopardy? Yay. Okay, I get nerd both. Nerd and happy. geek. Oh. I'm not sure I like where this turned out. I was going to make You're fun the of one you. who opened the I conversation. I know. It's my fault. It's my fault. You should never do that. Total nerd and total geek. A definitive ruling from my Bialik. From I the experts. The experts. Um, so it was uh, June of 2020. You called me up with your brilliant idea to have this podcast about Israel and the Jewish world and to have these Hold on a second. vantage point of the outside, inside, diaspora, Israel, you know, and that was just this, that wasn't you, it was me, it was my that brilliant idea. It was your brilliant idea and your phone call to me. This is very important. We have this conversation. Um, the It was absolutely you and... Uh, our early founding uh, executive producer, Leo Friedman, who made the call. It was during the pandemic. I remember I was walking alone on Hampstead Heath because it was at that period where, you know, the rules were such that you could not be in, you know, two meters of another human being. And I took this call and there was this crazy Israeli lady on the end of the phone <laughs> who was saying, what about a podcast? And I sort of <laughs> thought, you know, can, uh, is this a crank call? Um, but it was one of those things where you just think, uh, uh, I would never have thought of that, but okay, why not? And if I'm really honest, I don't know whether I've ever told you this, Johnny, I thought maximum this will last three months. This is not going to be a big commitment. This will crash and burn. So look, do it. Why not? It's a pandemic. No one will notice. And by March 2021, once we've been up and running for 12 weeks, it will quietly disappear. So that was the basis on which I uh, agreed to take part. But look, here we are 100 episodes later. <laughs> Johnny Friedland, you always say the nicest things to me. <laughs> it's like I never understood why you said yes. And it was quite easy to get you on board. And now I realize that what you were thinking yeah. is this is going to crash and burn. <laughs> yeah. And also it was like during the pandemic, I, you know, no one was really getting out much. I thought, what else am I going to do? Um, I'll, I'll agree to do that. Um, but here we are. But it's proved to be really something very special. Our incredible guests, hearing from you each week, Yoni, but also our listeners and the feedback we're getting from them. And, you know, the response we've had from a few people right at the start was that this podcast became, and I'm going to speak to the listeners now, part of your, you know, weekly ritual. For some people, it was a part of the Friday preparations for Shabbat. People have told me they listen to us as they go out to get the, you know, chalot for the Shabbat table. Other people telling me they listen to us on their walks or on their run, on the exercise machine, on the treadmill all kinds of different uh, responses, but people have said to us that they kind of appreciate it. And especially at moments like this when, and there have been a few moments of crisis, conflict and so on, that they found it um, a value to have us to turn to inside and out was how we always thought it. And, you know, what's a, a curious thing, for not talking about us now, is the, the how rare it is for Israel and diaspora to be in conversation. That was one of our first thoughts. 
uh, that there aren't many places where the two can talk to each other. And what's been amazing to see about the uh, events of the last three months or so is how much the two have got involved. So the, what's happening in Israel really has agitated Jews and diaspora. And there's been a kind of exchange between them, which is something very new. So there were protests even this week in London, for example, about events in Israel, where Israelis in London have been side by side with British Jews. Similar scenes going on in New York, San Francisco, Berlin, Paris, Israelis and Jews next to each other in a way that uh, maybe people outside don't realize how uh, how rarely that happens. Actually, the diaspora have wanted their voice to be heard with what's going on now. So we're a, we, you know we're a little bit a, a little part of that, but there is definitely a wider phenomenon going on. Anyway, we have had a hundred episodes. You, some of the listeners, have been with us, you know, pretty well every step of the way. If you like what you hear on this, remember you can write, rate and review on uh, social media, meaning our podcast page unholy podcast on facebook also on instagram tweet if you like a few people have been doing that this week we've appreciated that and of course you know wherever you get your podcasts those rates and reviews have helped and continue to help we will say thank you to Gaia Glazer, Omer Prima, Torom Atik, and Yair Bashan. We shall say Chag Sameach and Pesach Sameach because we will be sort of off for the next uh, two weeks unless there's anything going on and we will return to update you. When does that ever happen in this region? Yeah, no, I, I was going to say you just don't ever want to make any kind of plans <laughs> or commitments when it comes to this. But yes, we have a little plan up our sleeve for you while we take a little break for Pesach. Some conversations we have loved, some more conversations we have loved coming up, uh, barring uh, a sudden dramatic return to the podcast microphone if that happens we'll, you know, you'll know about it but otherwise yeah Pesach Sameach Hag Sameach to you Yoni to everyone listening and uh, yeah let's hope it's a peaceful and good one This podcast is brought to you by Cyber Attacks Can Be Prevented Checkpoint You Deserve The Best Security